2: I have a lot of hats. Acting for me is the hardest hat because I feel like I'm unveiling a portion of myself to the audience. And that is a scary thing to do. That's why people are definitely afraid to go and talking in front of public. You know, they don't want to reveal that shit.
0: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I am your other
1: host, Isaac Butler.
0: Isaac, it's so nice to see you again. It's been a while. Tell yeah. me, though, whose voice did we hear at the top of the show?
1: Well, we heard the voice of Arian Moyed, an actor who's probably best known for playing Stewie on Succession, a role which recently garnered him in Emmy nomination.
2: I like weird sex. I like
1: bad drugs. I'm a very complicated individual.
0: Excellent. And what drew you to speak with Aryan right now?
1: Well, I've known him for a really long time. I directed Arian in a play in 2005, I think, uh, and his theater company Waterwell, which you'll hear us talk about in the show. Uh, One of the members was a really good friend of mine Mm. and the roommate of a playwright I worked with all the time and, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's a small world, off-off Broadway (laughs) theater, you know. So what's nice is over the last almost 20 years, I've really gotten to see his career take off from afar. And, you know, this year he was in the final season of Succession. He was also the lead uh, opposite Jessica Chastain in the recent Broadway revival of A Doll's House. And he's also uh, really great in Nicole Holofcener's new movie, You Hurt My Feelings. And so with that trifecta, right, a great performance in TV and on Broadway and on film, I just thought it would be really great to talk to him and, you know, see what he has to say.
0: Yeah, no kidding. We should also note that this interview was recorded before the SAG-AFTRA, that's the Actors' Union, went on strike, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I want to be very clear about this. This interview was recorded on June 15th, which is prior to the beginning of the strike. I am a proud union member. I would never cross a picket line, and I would never suborn uh, the crossing (laughs) of a picket line. So this is A-OK. We double-checked it. It's fine.
0: Awesome. And Isaac, Arian, I believe, mentions a couple of names that some listeners might not be familiar with, Tom and Amy. Who was he referring to?
1: You mean you don't know Tom and Amy, June? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, uh, I know
0: a- Tom and Amy. But.
1: Yeah, exactly. So Amy is Amy Herzog, the Pulitzer-nominated playwright who wrote the new adaptation of D- A Doll's House. And it's in a very contemporary idiom. You know, when you think of Ibsen, you probably think of a lot of verbiage. This is like, yes. you know, it was two hours, no intermission in a Whoa. contemporary idiom. Um, Tom Ridgely is the co-founder of the company Waterwell. Uh, the two of them, Tom and Arian, went to college together. And he was also the director of their plays until he took over Shakespeare Festival St. Louis, where he is still the artistic director today.
0: Wow. Well, I am extremely excited to hear this interview, but I believe that you have an extra segment exclusively for the ears of Slate Plus members. What will they hear?
1: Well... I have a feeling we have a lot mm. of succession heads out there in uh, the working listenership uh, population, maybe mourning the end of the show. So Ari and I talk a bit about it, about the tone and atmosphere, and how he kind of figured out the style when he was first working on the show. Because right, he was in the—I think he's in the second episode, so none wow. of it had aired, so no one really knew what it was. And so it's about yeah. what that experience is like as a young actor.
0: Oh, do not miss that! If you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear it at the end of the episode. If you aren't, it's super easy to join. As a Slate Plus member, you get to hear extra segments on this show and others, such as the Waves and Culture Gab Fest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Slow Burn. And of course, you will never, ever hit a paywall on the Slate.com site. So to learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Arian Moyad.
1: Aryan, thank you so much for joining us on working this week to talk about your process.
2: Hi Isaac, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you, man? I'm good. It's crazy to be looking at you right now.
1: I know uh, our listeners should probably know that uh we actually work together on a short play at a now defunct theater called Manhattan Theater Source in the West Village. Almost 20 years ago. Is that right? That's right. I was not that long out of Vassar at the time. And you were not that long out of Indiana, right? That's where you studied acting? That's right. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and kind of like what its approach was and what it was like to study there?
2: You know, I auditioned for a bunch of schools and I didn't get into a single one. I didn't even get a call back. Nowhere. Really? And yeah. It just... I don't know what it was but that whatever it was it wasn't working
1: and i'd read this book rebel without a crew have you ever read that i've never read it but is that the um robert rodriguez one is that correct is that the, yeah yeah all right
2: and at the end of this book there's like a how to be a great film director section i don't know if that's what it's called but in my <laughs> brain it's like how to be a great film director it's like basically his advice to everyone and somewhere in there he mentions that to be like a great film director, you have to do a ton of bad movies. Huh. And then at the same time I read, Mamet wrote that book of like little like, true and false or something true, like that. Yeah.
1: True and false heresies like for the actor or something That's like that. That's what yeah, it yeah. is.
2: You would know, you would know. And I didn't understand 90% of what he was talking about. I was eight, seventeen, eighteen 17, 18 years old. Right. But one thing that he's like to do acting, you got to just keep doing it. And I hadn't gotten into any schools. And I'm driving down to Indiana University to come and see, like, if I'm going to go here. This is the only school that's accepted me, by the way, FYI. But I'm going to pretend or something. And I met with Charles Railsback and I asked him, how many shows can I do here? And he says, as many as you want. And that was, was, to me, Indiana University's training program. I ended up doing 15 shows in four years. Oh, my God. Tom Ridgely and I, who I co-founded Waterwell with... Um, we were, our freshman year, the leads of uh, Servant of Two Masters. Mm-hmm. And then my next show right after that was playing an extra in Keely and Do. I just <laughs> wanted to be in a bunch of shows. Mm. And then at the program, someone was teaching Meisner, someone was teaching Stanislavski, someone was, it was a hodgepodge of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you had a voice. Someone was doing Linklater, someone was doing Uta Hagen. Like, it was just like a hodgepodge of things. And 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 I took what I Took out of it. You know, the one, the pieces that I liked, I just stole it. I just was like, yeah, that's, I'll take that. What, What are
1: the pieces of that that you found particularly useful? I think repetition was such a big idea to me.
2: Again, it kind of goes back into the doing, I think. Right. I love being in those rooms that rep- that you just kept on going after a scene over and over and over again.
1: Right. You're talking about the Meisner repetition exercise where you're repeating the lines back and forth and then somehow, though, like a whole scene kind of evolves out of that.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or somehow the emotion evolves mm-hmm. to the thing that it needs to be, that uncomfortable, sticky, you know, 20-year-old, like, I don't know what this is feeling. Yeah, totally. I love that. I just love that, you know. And then and along the way, Tom and I really kind of started studying our own shit, to be real with you. We we started right. we started reading Meyerhold, do you
0: know mm-hmm. what I mean?
2: And like stick work, and we did that in a couple of waterwell shows. You know, along the way, like we we were finding all the stuff that was like resonant to us that was really kind of like work for us. We just kept on doing,
1: you know? Mm. Um Did you found Waterwell right out of school? Yeah, it was like right towards the end of IU, yeah. Oh wow. Okay, great. And this was I mean, I guess you describe it as a devising company, right? Like as a company, you collectively created the works. And so you were acting, you were writing, you were directing, you were producing, you were kind of doing all that at once.
2: Yeah. In the early days, I mean, we had a strong mission of just civic minded. That was in our mission statement in 2002. And we just really... We were so adamant about using art to change society. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. and we were idealistic and we believed it and, and, and we fought for it, you know? Um, right. and the word devising wasn't even at the time it was I think called ensemble
1: yeah yeah it wasn't it was like at the end of the decade because it was a term from the UK it kind of migrated over here and then it was yeah. like, oh Is devising that yeah that's what Waterwell does that's what the debate society does that's what yeah. the team does or yeah. You know, yeah. Whatever.
2: but really at the time it was just called like ensemble or I don't know what we called it to be honest with you but it was really mission driven it was really you know the war was happening and we did the Persians because we knew that was a great you know and we didn't have to say George W. Bush right you know as close as the person's about a a, a, uh the son of a king who wants to make his dad proud so he fights a dumbass war and all of his people die right you know yeah we didn't have to say george w bush what the fuck are you doing it was just the play you know right
1: i think that was the first show of water wells i saw Uh uh-huh it was funny because there's Quite a bit of the show is in untranslated Farsi, like a lot of the jokes. Right. And yeah. um, there'd be like 20 people in the audience just laughing uproariously yeah, yeah. Uh, at jokes <laughs> that obviously I did not get because I do not speak Farsi. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. The Persian community just came out. You know, that, that was the first show also for Waterwell, outside of just being fun and it was like a big hit for us. Um, it was the first show that like com- we like, really started bringing communities through our doors. We didn't know what we were doing, dude, but we were, we're like, Thursday night will be Persian night. And then Persians came and then we all talked and they all loved it. And then we're like, fuck it. Thursday and Friday night, Persian night.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love that idea of just throwing yourself into it, kind of not knowing what you're doing and just trying a bunch of shit and seeing what works. That is basically my creative process. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, it was nice talking to you. Thank, you, you, no, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, yeah. No, but exactly. I
2: mean that. I, I mean that when you when when I don't know how to do something, or Tom and I didn't know, or or whoever didn't know, instead of trying to like figure it out, we just did it. Right. Do you know what I mean? I want to tell you about the the nonprofit. Tom and I, we were. Everyone was like, "You need to get a lawyer." We're, this is 2002. This is a year after 9/11. Everyone's got a lawyer. We don't know a lawyer. We don't know. We don't know anybody. Right. But we found out along the way that the IRS's job is to help us become a nonprofit, not to deny us to become a nonprofit. <laughs> Do you know that that right. mentality? Just all of a sudden, you're like, oh, so we just kind of like turned in our application, and it was declined, and it had like 20 pages of why we are declined <laughs> with like specifics and right. Tom and I like, I bet you we could just like copy paste all this stuff into the application now and send that in. And we did. And we became a nonprofit. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: We're recording this. Um, you've just closed a doll's house on Broadway which I saw and very eager to talk to you about. Um, Mm. You played Torvald Helmer, who's the kind of, for those of you who don't know Ibsen's A Doll's House, maybe maybe pause this and go read Ibsen's A Doll's (laughs) House. Just come back. Torvald Helmer, who's the condescending and controlling husband of Nora Helmer, who was played by Jessica Chastain. So first off, were you offered the role or did you audition for it? I was offered the role. Did you know director Jamie Lloyd's work or had you met before or talked on the phone or anything? We hadn't
2: met before. I knew his work. I knew his Cyrano was lauded, but I missed that. And, And I saw his betrayal, which I really loved. And so I knew of him. I knew about him. I knew everyone was, like, excited about working with him. Um... And then we decided to meet up, like, in London, actually, because he was in London. And I just really wanted to hear what he was thinking. You know, I'm an Iranian male, like, playing Torvald. that can have a lot of, like, weird connotations. What are we doing? I'm here sure there's no problem. I just wanted to hear. We both wanted to right. hear from each other just to make sure that, like, this was really a, a, the right fit. Right. And, and we should
1: say for, for listeners who don't know that, that part of the approach of this play, of Lloyd's approach to this play, is that there were basically... There were zero props and extremely minimal staging. Yes. You know, the actors are just, there's just a a chair for each actor, a turntable that rotates. Most of the scenes are just the arrangement of the chairs and the actors seated. Yeah. And they speak, you all were speaking very softly into body mics, you know, into lavaliers that were, you know, visible and attached near your mouth. I just wanted to make sure just to paint the picture. And did Lloyd tell you all that from the get-go? Like, this is what Mm -hmm. it's going to be like? Yeah. What was your reaction when you first heard that? You know, when you walk into a piece like this bluntly, it could feel pretentious. You're going to
2: walk in, you're like, holy shit, we're going to do some pretentious ass shit. Where it's just going to be, you know what I mean? And it's it's not going to feel alive and fresh. Oddly enough, just speaking for Jamie for like in the first five minutes, I knew that wasn't going to be the case. Mm -hmm. Because his personality is all about heart and love. He's very open, like his heart is on his sleeve, and he wants to explore the world. Mm. Um, And he's got those
1: amazing tattoos.
2: And he's got a shit ton of tattoos. (laughs) I mean, there's one tattoo over, I believe it's his right eye that says silence. Right.
1: And then we just start talking about Torvald, to be
2: honest with you, because Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know Doll's House. I don't really, I don't know the play. I saw a couple scenes from it, you know, in class and shit, but we didn't read it in any of my Indiana University classes, that's for sure. And then when I moved to New York City, bluntly, I wasn't gonna be in adult's house. I just, right. Unless Waterwell did it, and in that case, like, whatever. So I, like, pretty much put aside Ibsen and Strindberg as, like, not in my life.
1: You mean you weren't going to be in Doll's House uh, because you're an Iranian immigrant or yeah, because you were because much I'm an Iranian, uh, like, 20 like, years younger than any character in a Doll's House at the yeah, time? Or, yeah,
2: totally. And also,
1: um, but I knew that Torvald was this
2: macho chauvinistic sit in the corner kind of guy and our conversation that day was really kind of lovely because i was like i'm I'm not that guy right like i'm i'm just not that dude and for me the story is more important than the acting Mm. do you know what i mean and so i i was like I want people to relate to Torvald so they could see in Amy's writings these microaggressions that are in here. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. If I if, if it's too big and too bold and too people are going to be like that's not me. I'm not going to fuck you know. Well why, why do I have to listen to this? That's not me. But if they see a piece of themselves or see a piece of their best friend or they see a piece of an action that they've done to that actually might move the needle a little bit more. That, that to me is, and, and Jamie and I really kind of spoke on those terms. Um, we really didn't talk too much about the acting, Isaac, to be honest with you. Like I really, you know I, you know, I was shocked that I was talking to him, that I was offered this, to be honest with you. I mean, right. he saw me in Bengal Tiger and that really meant a lot to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he was really like moved by that performance and and you know and that was a tricky one too, you know, an you know, an Iraqi translator kills an American soldier
1: on stage. Like
2: yeah. it you know like and trying to find sympathy for that isn't you know right. needs some navigation.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. So so that's interesting that you sort of figured out pretty early on what your kind of mission for the character was. I, I I'm interested in how you went about that like are you someone who does a lot of script analysis or a lot of research mm. or is it more about in, being impulsive and capturing the feeling like what's the beginning point for you as you're sitting down with a script and thinking about bringing a character to life i was told this by terrell mccraney mm-hmm.
2: in this class that we teach at, at waterwell called the artist's citizen and terrell mccraney learned this from august wilson that all great art runs on three cylinders the interpersonal, the global, and the spiritual, mm. and the thing that most people are afraid of is the spiritual. And so when I'm reading, when I read A Doll's House, especially Amy's version of A Doll's House, and then I read that version, and then I was reading Frank McGinnis's, and I was reading, and you know, also weirdly, the only woman's p- version of this I read is Amy Herzog's. Right. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? There's not. That's also so fucked up but so you're reading all these other versions of it and 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 I can see the trappings of it. I can see, I'm like, yeah, it's a little bit of script analysis. It's a little bit of just, you know, I think more about the story than I think about the character. Mm. And I really love to tap into the spiritual element. When I was doing Bengal Tiger, I was just talking to Rajiv Joseph who wrote this Pulitzer Prize finalist play called The Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which started at the Kirk Douglas, and then went to the Mark Taper, and then went to Broadway starring uh, Robin Williams. And, Rajiv was just telling me there's a moment in Bengal Tiger where the character of Musa, the one I play, is fighting for his life with this soldier and he, and then he exclaims, I am an artist. And Rajiv said to me, you know, when I wrote that, and in the, in the I'll tell you how I performed it. I said it twice with an exclamation point, loud, emphatic, and like with pain I was trying to go for. And then Rajiv just told me that when he wrote it, it said, I am an artist once, and there was a period.
1: Hmm.
2: And I was like, that's impossible. That's, I don't remember that at all. He goes, yeah, I, I can send you a, a, a clip of it. I can send you a, a photo shot of it. I was like, that's crazy. Because in my mind, I must have read that, and it, like the whole thing made sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The whole thing made complete sense to me of who this person is. And then I could see him sweat more. I could see him smoke 40 cigarettes a day. I can see him, you know, waking up in the middle of the night from a trauma. I can see all that stuff started diving in and becoming very real to me, Isaac.
1: Mm. And and, and, It's almost like an image forms in your mind of what the character would be like in real life, not on the stage. And then you're trying to like... Not imitate that image, but but find a way to be that image.
2: Yes, correct. Yeah, that's exactly okay. right. And as I'm going towards that image, as I'm going towards that, it's more and more things start falling into line. I'll I'll, I'll tell you about how um, there's two lines in a doll's House. There's one monologue. The the monologue is he has that Amy kind of wrote in. It's called I call it the Torvi monologue, <laughs> in which he is talking to his wife, Nora, played by the amazing guy, Jessica Chastain, that Krogstad, this guy that he hates, and he hates him because every time he walks into a room, he calls him Torvi, a name that he despises. And it's so mortifying for him that he could never work with this man again. Right? And obviously, in the next line, Jessica Chastain, Nora says... I mean, Torvald, you're kidding, right? No, why? That seems so petty. Right. Because it is petty. And you read that and you know these guys. You know these guys. They don't have the guts to be like, hey, Isaac, dude, I don't want you to call me Torvi. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, I don't know how to tell you this. It just bothers me. So if you want to be cool, and then, you know, Isaac will be like, okay, cool. Right, <laughs> right. I won't call you Torvi. I didn't even really know. But this guy is those guys that can't (laughs) muster that up. So we're both laughing right now. Right. Because we know this guy and we feel, oh, God, just dude. But now I want to be that guy. Right, right. You have to suspend
1: that judgment. Oh, forget all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Doesn't matter to me what people think of this. Right. This is so death defyingly painful, you know. And then you perform it and then you do it and then – you're, I'm in the rehearsal process, and there's no one laughing. It's all very real in there. Mm-hmm. And our first show,
1: Isaac, they laugh. Right. Because it's a different thing once there's an audience in there.
2: They start laughing at Torvi, yeah. And again, because we just laughed too. Right. Do you know what I mean? But now I just did five and a half weeks of making
1: sure that this feeling <laughs> is fucking real. Right. Do you know what I mean? Which is an ugly feeling. I mean, you're holding on to. I mean, Torvald is ultimately, you know, obviously, like you inhabit him in a way in which he's sympathetic because that's part of what you're trying to do is is have the kind of slow revelation of how ugly he is. Yeah. But it's a lot of ugly shit to have to hold on to. Hold on to. Is it a relief to let that go or are you struggling to let that go now is it gone That's a relief is it- for me it's gone <laughs> I, yeah. I,
2: I i put that stuff aside it's over for me you know yeah. i did it i exercised that i also learned from that i will mm. never do that <laughs> i will never fucking behave in that way right and, right you know a lot of actors came up to me um and said um you know i don't know if i could do that i don't know if i could just like take the brunt end of being like hated every night Right, you know, someone, yeah, because a certain deep people watch the show and they fucking hate Torvald. I get it, totally get it. And to me, I think about how amazing it is that like I can make people fucking hate me so (laughs) deeply. (laughs) I don't know, it's just so cool.
1: That is cool. That is cool. Yeah, but you know, that's something actors struggle with. When we were um, reporting out, uh, the world only spins forward. The book I did on Angels in America. Mm. It's like every Mm. actor we talked to who played Joe. Mm. It got to them that the audience despised him so much, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it was hard for mm-hmm. them to do that night after night It's it, it mm-hmm. is a weird thing to feel- even if no one says it to you like you feel the energy in the room
2: Yo, they hate him. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: totally. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, you know, we I totally feel the energy and the energy really is strong Especially when we were doing autographs people were like I fucking hated you, dude <laughs> <laughs> What um, a weird
1: thing to say to someone at the stage door. I know
0: We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Arian Moyad. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel.
2: That's shopify.com
0: slash specialoffer. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. And so we would love to receive yours. Please tell us your creative challenges. Let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com, or you can even send a voice memo to that address. That would be lovely. Or give us a ring at 304 933 WORK and leave a message. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Arian Moyad.
1: I'm very interested in how you made the leap that you made from someone who's kind of, you know, working on stage with your own company, you know, scrambling, et cetera, et cetera, Mm, and so forth, to, you know, being on Broadway, being on TV and film, making a living as an actor. I mean, that jump is one that lots of people attempt and don't make right we all know that yeah you know um uh, but you attempted it and you made it and so i'm just interested in like how you went about that how did you get an agent how did you start going out for roles was it because waterwell was getting pressed and people came to see it or you know what what was that journey can you tell me that story the
2: persians that we were mentioning earlier Mm -hmm. got a new york times rave i remember that yeah and then, some literally, we're all downstairs. Me, Hannah, Rodney, and Tom, and Andy, Chris, the the house manager, company manager, box office manager, everything else manager, <laughs> said, um, "This agency is upstairs. Can you guys come upstairs?" And uh, he wants to meet you. And we all ran up there, being like, "What is this?" And it was a big agency. And we and and right from there, uh, I got signed by them. Mm-hmm. And. I walked into those early meetings kind of being like, you know what, I really don't want to play terrorist roles. Yeah, of course. And I, you know, and but that was like all the roles that were there. So I never worked in film and TV mm. really, but really what was happening is I said I want to do sitcoms. So I tested for a bunch of sitcoms, got a, you know, like a little, but nothing really happened there.
1: Why did you want to and do sitcoms? What was interesting to that of the, about that work? Because I thought it was in the comedy world. I don't mm-hmm.
2: even remember where I was doing improv at the time That's when right, you yeah. I was doing improv. You know, I just thought comedy was an easy place for me to go, and and again, I didn't want to play terrorists. Right. You right. know, and there was nothing else to do. I mean, there's really not. You know, there was no roles. and so you know, sitcoms seemed like a cool thing to do. I booked a couple of things here and there, but nothing really went anywhere. To be honest with you, yeah. was, I just kept on doing a bunch of plays. Again, everything was Middle East. Before, for your listeners, like before Succession, I only played Middle Easterners.
1: <laughs> right. Like,
2: I mean, literally. Period. I was in Fever Chart. I was in this play. Pa- I played an Israeli. I played a Palestinian. I played. You were in Homebody or, Kabul at BAM. I was right? in Homebody Kabul at BAM. I was, you know, this play called Mass about three Palestinian brothers written by an Israeli. Like, all I did was Middle Eastern plays. And then I did Bengal Tiger. And those are the only places that they were showing them as human beings. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, the theater was the only place that's like, oh, no, this is a fully dimensional character or they'd at least listen to me because of the years of waterwell and creating her own shit like you know listen to me to be like hey yeah maybe i'll try a little bit of that you know Mm -hmm. and then what happened was um
1: i got dropped by my agents really after i was nominated for a tony award for Bengal tiger yeah and then they dropped you yes did they say why i didn't make enough money (laughs) oh fuck me
2: Okay, wow. I also had a four-month-old right. and a two-year-old. right. I'd been living on, this is year four of unemployment checks. you know what I mean? It was just a rough go, dude. We were just struggling. And now all of a sudden, I'm dropped. And not only was it demoralizing, it just broke me. It just crushed me. Because not only that, I also... Hired, everyone's like, you got to hire a publicist. So I hired this top tier publicist, but I didn't, I couldn't afford it. And so <laughs> I right. owed them money still. It was just like, everything was downhill, downhill, downhill. And really what, what came out of that, honestly, like very, very low point was, um, I stopped putting my faith in agents. I started thinking about them in a different way. I thought of them as middlemen. Mm-hmm. I don't even have an agent right now. Really, the reason why agents get ten percent is because they're doing ten percent of the work. Focus on the ninety. Focus right. on the ninety. And that, when when I got dropped after Bengal Tiger, right after being nominated, I literally was like, you know what, I'm going to focus on the ninety. Mm. And and the moment that that happened, even though I was saying no to terrorist roles prior to that, the. I was now even more emboldened to be like, you know what? No, no to that too. I'm not, I'm at. and, and we were broke, but I was getting more and more agency and more and more umph. And, and, and along the way, anyone that said no to anything that we were thinking about, it, water well, accidental wolf, any of it, I was just like, fuck it, we're doing it ourselves anyway. And that was the process for me. It was just like, I'm just going to push through. And that gave me so much confidence, you know? And along the way, it just dawned on me that, I have ownership over my craft, mm-hmm. and though I was broke, I was doing better work. I mm-hmm. really was. I was getting deeper with it. I just I was empathizing with the you know you know the nth degree of my of, of what this person might look like. Mm-hmm. And then the you work came. I mean?
1: And then the paying work came. Yeah, as a result, and the paying of work came. And then I did the humans. That was the right. other thing.
2: I had a great year. I did the guards of the Taj of at the Atlantic which won a bunch of, like, the Lortel and the Outer Crit and won a bunch of awards. And then I did the Humans the same year. Right. And those won a bunch of awards. And then right in the Humans, you know, the Succession Sports started coming, and, and it's you know, that's, good. That's, that's kind of how that happened, yeah.
1: So one thing that always fascinates me about being an actor, since I'm not an actor, right, is the metric ton of feedback about your work that you get oh, all the God. time. Whether it's notes from a director the vibe of the audience in the room, someone saying, I fucking hated you at the stage yeah, door while you're signing yeah. their program, reviews, tweets, whatever it is. There's just like a lot of the world's opinion of you coming at you. Yeah, and as yeah. you've become more prominent as an actor, I'm just wondering about how you've learned how to navigate that. It's tricky. You know, I, I'm just going to talk about Doll's House. because sure. that's the most immediate thing. And every
2: night there was a reaction. You know, and... And our job in doing A Doll's House was to tell the the most honest truths that we can with regards to what this might actually look like if this was a real thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's basically what we were going after. And in those truths, a lot of love, hate, you know, all that's in there. But because of A Doll's House, there is no set. Right. There is no props. There's no nothing. And so what's happening is you, as an audience member, are putting your own DNA and filling in our house and filling in the props and filling in Nora and filling in Torvald and filling in Krogstad. You are now putting your own DNA all over that shit. But your DNA is different than my Iranian mom's DNA, mm-hmm. who is seeing something completely different. So then you go to the stage door. And you hear someone say, I fucking hate your Torvald makes me sick to my stomach. Like someone's said shit like that, if not exactly like that. But like they detest. There's people that fucking hated my Torvald, Right, hated him, wanted to punch him. In the, I would get that a lot. I wanted to punch him in the face. I could slap him in the face. And then you then are like, but he also is a human being. Right. So now I'm going to give you the opposite. Sometimes there was it happens where and and this would happen. I think it was like 60 percent like really despised them, forty percent like really, like thought he was just a clueless male idiot that you know, but didn't hate him. I got into a line where there was like three or four people that really were sympathetic women, sympathetic to Torvald. Hmm. They they were in a group, so it maybe like one person's influence kind of like influenced the group. But now all four of them are team. Torvi, do you know what I mean? Right. Which is crazy, but also you can get it. Now I find myself being like, I know, but, you know, he is controlling. He's a narcissist. Right. (laughs) Like, I'm also now fighting them being like, I know, but like. But didn't you want to punch me in the face? Didn't you want to punch me in the face? Exactly. Exactly. So, and and that's about me. Mm Mm-hmm. That's that's about me. I am definitely wanting everyone to understand every aspect of my character of Torvald. And if they don't, I feel like, you know, I feel like I've failed miserably. But the reality is is that yeah, the person that doesn't understand that's sympathetic and wants to punch me in the face is giving me a compliment. It's a fucked up way of receiving a compliment, but it is but it, they are trying to give me a fucking compliment. Um so that's one portion and the other is you know the pain of you know acting for me I have a lot of hats acting for me is the hardest hat because I feel like I'm unveiling a portion of myself to the audience yeah and trying to do it realistically and you know even with characters that are so opposite of who I am and that's you can judge that and that's a scary thing to always hear you know i I feel for all actors because it's you're in anything that you play, whether you're playing Richard the Third or whatever, like you are revealing a portion of who you are mm-hmm. in these words and and that is a scary thing to do. That's why people are definitely afraid to go and talking in front of public right you know they don't want to reveal that shit. they don't want to fucking be like, oh, I'm you know, and we do it on the regular, but right. it, but with doll's house, to be real with you. I've learned so much of how human beings behave, how Torvald behaves. That like, that like to me, it's so easy for me to put that shit aside and be like, "That's over." Uh, I really, you know, me, you know, my wife probably would say, "Who's really like?" I, I bet you she would say, "My my hardest moments are during the rehearsal process." Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I bet you she would say that that's where the stuff comes home a little bit more. But when I'm done with the character, when the show is done, it's done. Let's let's go hang out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Aryan, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your process.
2: Thanks, buddy. Thank you for having me. You're and it's so great to see you. Congrats on everything, man. Thank
1: you. I really appreciate it.
0: Up next, Isaac and I will talk about the benefits and downsides of high-intensity creative work. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically-backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your
1: focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic
0: chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y ycom These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy.
0: I was really struck by Arian's story of not getting into acting schools, but then being happy that he did get into Indiana because they gave him the opportunity to do a ton of shows. And I sense from your response that 15 shows in four years really is a lot. That kind of learning by doing and doing really quickly really suits some people and it drives others away which is maybe a good thing because they learn early on the reality of a profession or a vocation maybe it isn't what they thought but arian really learned a lot by just trying stuff riffing repeating what's your response to that do it as much as you can approach to work and art
1: well first of all let me say yeah i think 15 shows in four years is a lot uh (laughs) I basically neglected all of my schoolwork to do as much theater as possible in college. And I think I did like 12 or 13 shows. You know, there was one semester where I did three shows and and it nearly killed me. But that wasn't (laughs) really what you were asking about. Uh, Enough about me. Uh, You know, I do love the do as much as possible approach in your early career anyway. You know, when you're thinking like whenever it comes to you that you might want to do something as your real career or passion for your life, your vocation or whatever. And that could be when you're in high school. That could be when you're in your fifties. You know, I, I don't mm-hmm. actually think the age part of it matters. It's at the beginning. I just think you want to do as much in that field as possible. Yeah. Get the reps in, try a bunch of different roles, try a bunch of different styles, make yourself useful, meet a lot of people and work, 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 work. Mm. If I could go back and tell young me one thing, it would probably be like, you actually don't know anything. So just keep working as much and as often as possible.
0: Yeah. And I, what you said about meeting as many people as possible, that really makes a ton of sense too. Y-
1: yeah. You know, we tend to cast aspersions on the social aspects of the creative businesses. You know, it's not what you know, it's who you know or whatever, mm-hmm. but I don't know a single profession in which knowing people in your field is a negative thing or isn't going to help you both creatively and in your career. You should just, you need to know a lot of people. It is part of being a doctor. You know, it's part of being a a A journalist. It started being a plumber. It's like, you want to know people in your field. um, uh, Some of that's careerist. some of that's So you have friends who know the same struggles that you do. And, and some of that's just, you're going to learn a lot, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just to interject here that while the topic of this episode is not the actor's strike, it does seem worth mentioning that there are many reasons why actors want to act and writers want to write. And getting paid is a significant one, but it's not the only one. By choosing to withdraw their labor because they're fighting for a fair contract, actors are also depriving themselves of those reps, the opportunity to explore their talent and do the work that they love.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Uh, my my last book, The Method, How the 20th mm. Century Learned to Act. Uh, the last third of that book is mostly about the actor's studio. And the story behind the founding of the actor's studio is that Cheryl Crawford, Elia Kazan and Bobby Lewis started it so that actors would have a kind of gymnasium mm. for acting for their mm. craft that they could, you know, work out in in-between plays because all they were doing in-between plays is hanging out at a diner and waiting by the payphone for their agent to call with an audition, literally. And (laughs) so, you know, that tells you something about in order to practice the craft of acting, you have to have a bunch of people in a room together, you know? And so if you're voluntarily like, nope, actually, we're not doing that and we're all agreeing we're not going to do that, it really uh, can hurt your craft on some level and Mm -hmm. also, like people in all sorts of other professions, Actors and writers gain some amount of dignity and self-definition from the work we do, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, deliberately depriving yourself of that thing that really shapes your life is emotionally a, a complicated thing, at least from talking to my friends who are on strike right now. That's that's what it seems like.
0: Wow, okay. Just listening to Arianne, I understood why he is a start-your-own-company kind of guy. He has opinions, and he clearly lives his politics, even if that costs him roles and money. He will not play terrorist roles, even though as an Iranian immigrant, those are parts that casting agents would surely be very happy to put him in. So rather than waiting to be cast, he and some like-minded collaborators created a company to do their own mission-driven thing. And of course, my mind goes right to that old, my dad's got a barn, let's put on a show, cliche. But In the real world, doing your own thing is really hard. It's not an option that appeals to or suits everyone. And, you know, the level of difficulty varies depending on what your particular art form is. Isaac, are you a do-it-yourselfer? And additionally, what kinds of things should people think about before they try to form, you know, their own acting company or blog or record label or whatever Mm. their art requires? I'm like half
1: a DIY guy. I, <laughs> I I love the spirit of building your own thing. And I have gone to build my own thing several times and I have completely failed <laughs> in, the, in the execution of it with, with one exception, which is the, the blog I had, which slowly transformed me into a writer. Oh. I, the way that I maintain that spirit is if there's a problem that needs to be solved, I'm probably just going to go and solve it myself. Yeah. I am probably not going to reach out to someone else. I am pro- you know, it's, it's in the theater thing where it's like you see a floor that needs to be swept. It's like, well, go fucking sweep it. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think it's also because of certain issues that I have to work on, which is that I don't like relying on other people. Mm-hmm. And I find asking for help uh, incredibly challenging. Yeah. So the thing that I have actually had to work on over the past decade is not doing everything myself and actually asking people to do things that, that need to be done so that I'm not doing everything all the time.
0: <laughs> Interesting. I was really struck by Ariane's story of finding his character in Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo via punctuation, you know, the exclamation points at the end of the line. Yeah. I'm an artist, even though the writer later told him it was actually a period in the text. Um, now... What I'm about to say will probably sound like a weird response to that, but bear with me. I enjoy accents and I have found that the best way to kind of get an accent is to grab onto a very specific phrase or a sound from the accent to get into it. So like for a South African, for a white South African accent, it would be a pin as in, do you have a pin, a pin to heart with? Or for a Kiwi, it would be. Like the weird way they pronounce the letter I, like fush and chirps or have you funnished? So in a weird way, I feel like I'm describing a version of the method, you know, using a phrase or a piece of punctuation to attach to something so you can summon it at will. Am I making any sense, Mr. Method?
1: Yeah. I mean, that totally makes sense. Look, before an actor realizes a character, all that character is is blobs of ink on a piece of paper, right? <laughs> they don't actually exist. They're not real. Um, but the text gives you a ton of clues about who they are. And in fact, one of the things you can do while the inspiration isn't flowing is to go back to the text and you know mine it for more and more clues about who the person is and, and the context of their life. Now, some actors because we brought up punctuation are very hostile to punctuation you know Christopher Walken always erases all the punctuation oh in his text but most people pay attention to it you know <laughs> uh, what this actually reminds me of is a long time ago uh it was maybe even the first year of working i did an interview with the wonderful choreographer Annie B parson and she said she never gets Creatively blocked because she focuses on small things. She's always focusing on and looking for small things. Mm. And I feel like what this all brings up is that there actually is always a little thing that you could be
0: focusing on. Ah, there's always something to go to. Um, One last thing that this, admittedly, is something I was. Just thinking about thinking of his of Aryan's acting. I, I haven't seen him on stage, but my impression of him in succession and also the late underrated Madam Secretary, which was positively law and order-ish in its employment of excellent New York-based actors, was supported by something he said. So he's the kind of actor who makes audience members feel things, you know, to understand the emotions of what's happening on the screen. So in Succession, I was always a bit confused about who exactly Stewie was, whose friend was he, whose interest was he representing, what am I supposed to think about him? I never really knew, but it didn't matter because I always felt what he was conveying, like, oh, he's freaking out Kendall or he's reassuring Shiv or he's confusing Roman. I knew what the the vibe was. And being able to set a vibe in whatever medium you're working, that's an amazing talent.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, Stewie is a very enigmatic character on purpose, right? Kendall should never be sure if he can trust him. And since Kendall is our primary point-of-view character, neither should we. But also... You know if you watch the show go back to it, you know Stewie is usually the voice of reason and even mm-hmm. if he's a bit, you know, perverse and mischievous and yes. Kendall is a total lunatic. Like if you yeah. did the show from Stewie's point of view, you'd probably see that yes, he's out for himself and he has a very complicated relationship with this old friend of his, but that old friend of his is also constantly hatching grandiose schemes for no reason, right? Anyway, <laughs> right. this is not a Succession podcast, but uh, it mm. brings me to an old acting adage is don't worry about what your character is feeling. Worry about what your character wants the scene partner's character to feel, right? Mm. Don't worry about what you're doing. Worry about getting the other person to do something. Uh, You just constantly want to ask those kinds of questions that get you out of yourself and Uh into the world of the scene. Um, And I think that's true of of most creative endeavors, actually, right? Like, you don't want to be thinking, is this paragraph I'm writing, are people going to think... That it's well written or, you yes. know, whatever. But it's yes. like, what effect yep. do I actually want this paragraph to have? Um, yeah. I think Aryan is exceptionally good at that. and mm-hmm. And some of it just comes from who he is as a person. He's not an egotistical actor. He's not in it to be a star. He's not in it because he needs love. You know what I mean? He's in it to connect to something true in the world.
0: Yeah. Well, Arian, we love your work, and listeners, we love you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, remember to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash workingplus.
1: Thank you to Arian Moyed, and to our amazing producers, Cameron Drews and Kevin Bendis. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with the amazing playwright Madeline George, who wrote the script for Audible.com's audio version of Alison Bechdel's Dykes to Watch Out For. Until then, get back to work.